So I think that some of the uh, work that we would do in these spaces where there are no archetypes is to enable us to unpack what it means uh, if these archetypes were to turn into technologies that were feasible, that were then determined into products that could be shipped, uh, and then products that were shipped and popular and were impacting society at scale. There's a lot of barriers that potentially we'll never get through, but if we were to get through them, it feels like this is a, a, a category of product that can have a huge impact, so it's important to talk about it sooner than later. Very well might be a waste of time, but I think that's the risk we're happy to take on. Um, a, because it's important, B, because it's just interesting. That was Afshin Mahin. Afshin is the founder of Card79, a creative studio based in San Francisco and Vancouver. The studio focuses on tackling complex and future-facing projects, working on everything from brain-computer interfaces to autonomous vehicles for agile startups like Postmates, as well as larger companies like Amazon and Lululemon. Afshin's experience blends the old and the new, having worked for traditional furniture designers like Barber Augsbury and Terence Conran, as well as futuristic institutions such as MIT's Media Lab Europe and Elon Musk's Neuralink. Afshin joins us today for an absolutely fantastic podcast, and we hope you tune in to the entire thing because it is fraught with wisdom and there are many little tidbits of, of design gold that can be taken away from this. Without further ado, I give you Afshin Mahin. Creativity for the society is The Process Podcast. It's the Process Podcast, episode 518. Um, and Zach, today we've got like, this is a rare occurrence and it's a very exciting occurrence. We're joined, we're joined by a guest that typically the guests that we have, we have some type of a personal connection. Maybe we went to school with them mm -hmm. or we know them like through work. Um, and today we're joined by Afshin, Afshin Mahin. Am I pronouncing everything correctly? Perfect. Yep, you got it. Fantastic. And you came out of the blue, cold email, had never, it suffice to say, hadn't, your name hadn't come across like my radar at all, was genuinely unaware of, of who you are, which maybe speaks to the, the narrow sightedness of, of me. Um, but you're, you're our guest today on the process podcast and we're very excited and we're, we can't wait to dive into some cool stuff with you. I'm super excited to be here. I'm looking forward to digging into some interesting conversation. Fantastic. Zach and Zach and I did want to ask, um, before we get too deep in, in design and your background and like what has brought you to where you are today, very curious about how you came across the process podcast in the first place and what prompted you to reach out. Uh, it's basically, I've been looking for podcasts for inspiration. You know, after a while, you get a little bit kind of stuck in terms of new ideas. And it, and just uh, coming out of the pandemic and trying to find a way to reconnect with uh, the design community. So I just scouring for different podcasts. And I think, I forget what like website pointed me towards the process podcast. But as, as soon as I started going through there, I, uh, I was really enjoying the, the focus of of getting back to basics with ID and really did kind of get a kick out of that and thought I'd reach out. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's how, how I got to where I'm at right now. That's really cool. <laughs> Do you remember the first episode that you listened to from us? No, I can't. I was, I was going through so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> you were that big spike that we saw all, it was just normal. And then all of a sudden there was just a huge spike in the middle. I'm like, that's, that's where yeah. you listen to everything. Yeah. You were the guy that listened to 75 episodes in a day. <laughs> you guys are amazing. You. This has been going for a while and you guys are, it's awesome. Thank you. It's, 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 it's been a good challenge and we've kind of had to, um, especially in the last year, like learn to adapt as our lives change. Like the, mm -hmm. the place in our lives where we started it versus where we are now is very different. And it's, I guess it'll be three years in September um, yeah. well, since yeah. we started it. And 
we've never wanted to stop it, but we've always, so it's been making it work around our lives. So it A, doesn't control it and we don't feel like we, it doesn't become a chore, like where we have to show mm-hmm. up each day and say, okay, now we got to do this and talk. Um, and it never has felt like that, but we want to be able to maintain, I think a healthy space around it so -hmm. that we kind of don't prevent that burnout. So, and with schedules and stuff like with where Zach works and his commute and where I have to go like two days a week to work in Toronto, it's, it makes sense for us to reduce the quantity that we're doing to hopefully maintain the quality. Mm-hmm. And there could come a time where we can increase it again and go three or four or five days a week again, but who knows? That's that's for the future to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we wind the clock back, not focusing on Zach and I anymore, because this isn't our show, this is about you. Where, if we wind the clock all the way back, where does design and creativity first come into your life? Uh, it comes back in back when I was, I guess. Um, a youngster, I grew up in Vancouver. We were uh, recently moved from Iran to uh, Vancouver back in 78. We first, and, and uh, just growing up, kind of a kid in the early 80s, uh, buying or trying to buy like Nike Airs and um, Ocean Pacific shorts. We couldn't even afford Ocean Pacific shorts. My mom had to like sew logos into my pants because we were too poor to be able to, <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> to afford it. So uh, awareness of brand came in a lot early on, just, just being like a kid of that age, Air Jordans and just all that stuff was, I realized now how, impa- how impactful it was. And I guess it's around the same time, like Lamborghini, uh, like the Countach's and the Testarossa's like and I, I, I dreamed of being a car designer and having a car company back in grade six. Mm-hmm. And we were like drawing floating cars and selling them to other classmates. So I was like, I think I, I didn't know what it was called back then, but I was interested in like creating the future. And mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of like, I just assumed it was being an inventor. Um, but as I got into high school, um, we had a, a couple really good art teachers and um Got exposed to industrial design uh, in grade 11. There's a course called Art 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 Careers, I think it was. And so I went and made a trip out to Emily Carr, which is our local art school in Vancouver, and just discovered ID Magazine when it was still alive, and just uh, started to uh, realize that this was my calling, and, and uh, kind of veered my my attention that way. Having said that, uh, I am like I mentioned, a family of. Uh, immigrants, first generation immigrants. So my parents were pretty out to lunch when it came to ID. So I made a, uh, a foray to ID through mechanical engineering. So they're like, you better get something dependable. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's try engineering. So I did mechanical engineering. And then after that moved over to the, I went to the Royal College of Art in London, did master's in industrial design, mm-hmm. and then kind of veered back into, uh, into, into ID. And uh, it kind of shaped me. So I think like, where the studio is now is a, is, is a reflection of how uh, that bridge between a kind of a, a technically minded brain and maybe a creative brain kind of work together. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of the origin story. That's really cool. And you're, you're totally speaking Zach's language with the car stuff. <laughs> I was, I never understood cars as a kid. I do now. And that's probably cause I can drive. That's a big factor, but I didn't get the allure to car culture as a kid for whatever reason. I think I was more interested in, in dragons as a, as a 10 to 15 year old, admittedly, but it's right up Zach's alley and designing your own car company. That's a cool idea. That's great. I definitely appreciate that though, Dylan, like I've got a four year old right now and I find he's, I think genetically where he's like talking about fast cars and and I was like, let's let's change the topic. Let's talk about butterflies and like <laughs> mountains. And like, I realized how narrow perspective I probably had. And, and yeah, so I do mm-hmm. see value in seeing beyond just that because there's so many, so many different points of inspiration you can pull from. And what, like you said, you wanted to become a car designer and you're currently not a car designer to the best of my knowledge, but you seem to be a man that wears many hats. So I could be wrong about that. But what was the... <laughs> Other than like, say, maybe the familial pressure to 
push mm. you towards mechanical engineering. Um, did that desire to create kind of linger in the back of your head through yeah. MechEng school? Great question. Um, as I finished up MechEng, I did a, a my, my dad, when he, um, uh, when he was uh, uh, still around, we did a, a trip down the, the, the coast where we dropped through, we went through Stanford and checked out their kind of their product design program. And I was like, this is, this is interesting, but we went down to art center afterwards and then uh, was checking out the campus. And then we also like just showed up at the, the, like the, I think it was the, what was the Pacifica design center for Chrysler back in the day and also Nissan's design center in San Diego. And just like, it's like, Hey, can we get a tour? Like, no, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I did definitely like pursue learning more about it. I think what ended up, Coming to the surface was uh, this. There was more opportunity to blend uh, like that logical brain, which I think I, I always had. Like even in high school during art careers, I was trying to invent new sports. So we we're like, I think we tried to create like a pogo stick that would let you like jump super high. And I was, I was. Uh, there's a spiking sport called uh, trials where you're hopping up stuff. Mm-hmm. I used to do that a lot, and I was like, this. Is, what if you did it for a new sport? Like I was trying to invent new things. And so I think industrial design was a bit more forgiving for towards the idea of invention um whereas with uh transportation design it is a more heavy heavy on styling um i feel like i was able to kind of tick that box when i was working at ideo we did some work for some car companies doing like interfaces for their uh future electric vehicles and so i was like oh i I kind of am getting close to that world of like saying i did some work in the auto space um and we still do work for some uh, projects we we did work uh, just recently uh, designing automotive lighting for autonomous vehicles. So mm-hmm. it's the technology meets uh, transportation world, which I think we kind of can play in, not necessarily styling, um, which is uh, which is okay by me. <laughs> yeah. What you said there reminds me of um, an episode we did maybe a year, almost two years ago with my old engineering boss at the place I used to work. His name's Lachlan. Um, I'll send you his episode after. I think it's 174 and it's a good chat if you haven't listened to it yet. But he he grew up wanting to work for military defense contractors and like designing and building tanks and stuff. And the challenge with those large corporations is exactly that. They're large corporations and they're challenging to be a part of as a individual and as a person. You're not largely you get you can get reduced to say an employee id number um and you lack through just the fault of the system maybe the ability to have a strong personal impact on something that comes out the door there and he found out that and it's all retrospective learning but found out that by working with a smaller company that can service and contract work for one of those military defense contractors, that that was more fulfilling than actually being behind, call it like the iron door of one of these large companies. And it was being able to learn from the big company and interject that knowledge into a small company and still get to do what you want, still get to do what you were interested in, but without being tied down to that is the only thing that you have to do like where you're able to have your touch on autonomous lighting or lighting for autonomous vehicles. You can do that from the comfort of your studio and from through card 79 without having to be involved perhaps with the politics of being in a large uh, automotive manufacturer or, or design design firm. Yeah. I will say though that, uh, I, we, I do appreciate the complexity of how orgs function. Like the, things happen, things are organized for a reason for the most part. Um, and so understanding how everyone reports to one another and what their responsibilities are is part and parcel on how we can help those companies too. Like the, mm-hmm. the more I'm engaging with, with companies, the more I'm realizing, hey, I, I kind of need to like, a framework of how they function so that I can work with them effectively. So it's one more like layer of um, defining 
uh, a bunch of variables that we can then work with and manipulate as part of our designing process. Mm -hmm. Is that a, how do you learn that type of a skill though? Cause I, then that's coming from, you know, Zach and I are not, uh, well-versed in the industry per se. We've been out of school for maybe three years. And so there's, there hasn't been a great deal of practical experience in that respect. Um, I've been able to touch on a little bit of it through my day-to-day work, but compared to yourself, who is more of a veteran in the field and has had the benefit of having the experience of working with those large firms, how do you kind of dissect that, that learning? Uh still 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 gaining the experience I, I don't think i've necessarily like created a completely robust framework but i think a lot of it's like a micro macro view where at the micro level you're it sounds a little bit kind of cold and but basically you're you're listening to people you're working with or wanting to work with and understanding what makes them successful like what do they need to be able to uh, be fulfilled in their career progress in their career and then zooming out, what does the company need to progress uh, at the macro level and be successful? And like, where does this project that you're potentially working on fit into that is, and what are their priorities at a, a company level? And if you can start to understand how uh, those align, because at the end of the day, you're working with people uh, and they ha- you have to kind of make sure you're helping them succeed. And at, at then you have to understand, okay, well, this project we're doing for the company, uh, the company wants some some value out of it, and when it's complete, not just from the work we do, but the project that we're working on together, how does that fit in strategically? Is it a big is it a big focus for them? Is it a side project? How is it going to is it expanding into the future direction they're going to go into? Is it a risky project for them? Is it going something they're kind of like putting some money on the table on, but they're not necessarily betting their entire future on it? Um, and uh, by knowing that and, and like what, what is it is it an effort to get are they competing with other people are they trying to have some sort of public relations eff- effort out of this where people recognize them for being a leader in a certain way um, are they trying to get investment um, what's the uh, what are the main drivers and by knowing that you can be a better partner for them um, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always come from like a clearly written brief like it's just conversations, doing background research, really trying your best to understand um, what you're stepping into so that you can really be uh, an effective partner. It really gets to the human level of it. Then it goes beyond just they're a client who happens to be paying you money. They're not just like a name in an email subject line. They're, they're actually a person and you got you to gotta dive into that and, and treat them as such. And, and there's yeah, that's the micro and then the macros there's also like it's an equation it's like mm-hmm. how is this company calculating this project in their bigger picture and like what is the how how can you understand that when they're not sharing that information with you openly all the time mm-hmm. um, maybe reading in between the lines that's another kind of mm-hmm. um soft skill or like intuitive skill that we, we kind of have to put to play within the studio that's 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 really valuable because there's I guess, especially when it comes to um, working on creative projects, you know, I, I'm sure Zach and I both experience this. I know I do, and I'm sure Zach does, because a lot of the work that we both do for separate companies is client facing. It's it's for someone, and they've got a specific request or desire that we are helping to execute, and that opens you up to um, critique and the potential for feedback. But then at the same time, that also puts you in the vulnerable position where the stuff that you've produced is, you know, up for interpretation from more than just the person who you're talking to. It's their stakeholders and their bosses and their bosses' bosses. Mm. Um, And being able to, this is one thing that I'm learning and I'm curious if you're also have, if you've had a similar experience in the past, but it's learning to dissect feedback that is, uh, reactionary in the moment and feedback that has been kind of thought through with a team of people. And there's been a consensus about what we're critiquing and what we're, what we're giving feedback on, not just reacting to impulsively. Yeah. I, I think there's, um, there is that type of dissection, but then there's also the architecting of 
who you're meeting and and when you're meeting. And we often, uh, in, you know, on our side, try and um, organize meetings where we have a lot of the important key stakeholders in the room with us, um, physically or virtually, um, and find that that like prompting or encouraging or or kind of making that the de facto way to organize things uh, is uh, is is what we like to lean into. Um, and doing so, you're always going to get more coherent um, feedback when you can hear them, i.e. your clients, stakeholders, talking amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of information, again, uh, you can take from that. And, and just, yeah, the more, the more people that uh, are impacting the final decision, having a direct line to them um, and kind of making that part of the engagement from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's kind of what we always uh, like to talk about with our clients when we first start a project is kind of establishing that that's the way we work and, and, um, and it's best for them as well. That's, that's, that's really true. I do want to, cause we've kind of gone down a bit of a, a, a <laughs> business inside rabbit hole, which, which I love. I'm, absolutely love it. Um, I did want to just touch on something briefly before we kind of dive into kind of what exactly card 79 is and, and, you know, what's, what's so interesting about that and, and the work that you're, that you're, that you have done and are currently doing. Um, but you mentioned that, um, like your family is first generation immigrants, um, from Iran. And I'm curious about, um, maybe your experience with, um, like say, call it the immigrant mentality where there's the desire or maybe even the drive and the need to, um, push really hard and, and make your parents proud. And maybe it, it maybe it's acknowledging the sacrifice. I'm not sure. Cause I don't come from a family of, of, I'm not a first generation immigrant family. And that's, it's not something I can relate to, but it's, something that we've had friends who have similar experiences, but I'm, I'm curious if, if anything there resonates for you. Yeah, I, I think it's like any, uh, any, I, I guess I'm just kind of looking back at my parents and imagining them moving versus other family members who were perfectly happy staying in Iran. It's probably a certain temperament that's kind of uh, looking for something different or better. And so when they kind of take that step and they naturally create a, a kind of a family history for us that kind of every time we look back, we kind of have these memories of the sacrifices they made and the efforts that they took to like get us to where we are. And it, it's inspiring. So I think mm -hmm. through those stories that we've been told and we experienced firsthand, we're inspired, right? We're like, oh, let's do it. Let's make something cool. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that's. That's that's our story. I think every immigrant's story is different, and as much as like there is that trope, which is pretty true, you, you, I think the thing that makes it true is the fact that you everyone made that huge sacrifice or trip to get over to somewhere else, and just by doing so, you're kind of like in a certain headspace, mm -hmm. um, which then the next generation feeds off of. But yeah, that's that was that's that's been our experience. Has that influenced in any way where you've ended up today? at all, or maybe even in some of the companies that you've been a part of in the past, such as, such as IDO, for example, you've brought that up a few times. Yeah. I, I'd like to think that there's a certain kind of, it's still something I'm, I'm also trying to uh, integrate into the work we do is uh, our studios is focused on solving complex problems, uh, both technically, but also I feel like uh, aesthetically and culturally, like we're going through this, it's time where everyone's starting to realize that there's a lot of multiple perspectives to like what's good and what's right. And um, whether it's like across black lives movements or me too, or like we're, 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 we're broadening our perspective here. And, and um, I don't necessarily know how I'm not, I'm not looking at through the political perspective. I'm looking through an aesthetic and kind of a, there's so many ways that you can look at design and aesthetics. And I think that like, I'm personally interested in how the aesthetics of kind of, uh, of, 
the work we do can can be broadened over time. So um, that's definitely a more intellectual or philosophical approach to it. Um, I think that the work we've done at IDEO or, or I don't even know if it's, if it was, if it came up there, but in general, when we're doing human centered design research and talking to people and understanding their needs, it's just having a more awareness that there's so many different ways of being. Um, and so, uh, I think that's, uh, that's probably the main way I think I, I've probably been impacted by it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just, uh, every culture has something to give every every person has a unique perspective and not um and giving them the the, the the space to kind of bring their complexity and their their story to the table so mm -hmm. yeah that's a bit verbose but sorry it's <laughs> no don't don't apologize no, good and you you mentioned the kind of the the that different cultures have say different things to bring to the proverbial table there's you've from I've listened to every podcast you've been on in preparation for this, so we can, so we have research. Basically, that's that's my nice. version of that's our version of doing research. Um, but you know, whether it's Iran or Vancouver or San Francisco, where you are now, you went to to you did your masters at the RCA, and that's obviously in the UK. Did, and I'm also just a sucker for it in general. But did travel have an impact on you as a designer in any way? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I uh, it's funny. I, I, uh, it's a guilty pleasure. I think that I enjoy travel so much and it gives you this unique perspective, but it also takes you away from kind of, uh, a grounded location where you could be like, this is my home base. I can start creating. It's like, I think some people are naturally like great creators when no matter where they are. Um, but as industrial designers, I think we like to make stuff. So having a workshop, having a place that you can feel like you know where all your stuff is. And yeah. that's that's kind of a very basic need. But yeah, um, every time I've traveled I've, and I've wanted to make while I'm traveling, I've been a little bit frustrated. So, and gosh, I'm I'm like, the last couple of years have kind of just shut down travel for me. So I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. We've done a couple of conferences, uh, New York and Seattle and um. And, no, didn't go to CES this year. It's quite no. <laughs> <laughs> quite happy about that. But uh, but yeah, so just trying to get back into it and and uh, and see if we can get that going. I do have a couple of kids now, and, and it's a little bit different. It's like these, uh, it, it's they're uh, they they got their mind a mind of their own, and they're not that cooperative. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> so I hear. Yeah. So yeah, travel. It's definitely something that's inspiring. And, um. Uh, I'm hopeful to get back into it in some way, shape, or form. That's um, awesome. Did you guys ever go to any like design conferences or like like we've got the design fair in in Milan uh, for furniture? Any of that ever kind of on your radar? I think it's been on the radar. It's one of those things that's probably tough. Just whether it's the cost or the time of getting out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know we would love both love to go to more mm -hmm. conferences. I mean, I I think. I don't know if Dylan, if you ended up going, but I know like Toronto has a big design festival. I guess you call it the was it the Design To? Is it? Oh, there's like, yeah, there's Design, design To. There's Nuit Blanche, the Interior yeah. Design Show, the Toronto Auto Show. Well, the Toronto Show, I've been to that many times. Uh, <laughs> I haven't made it to the others. I know we would like to because I know our one. Um, and actually, this goes into what I wanted to ask you pretty well, but our one professor in uh the first two years of our design program um he's got his own design company designs like custom like eyewear frames cool. um, and he always had a place where he he was part of like design to and he would kind of show off to the public what what their studio was working on and um so that so he always talked about it and i always wanted to go and i never i never made i think it made, especially with COVID, i think it just never I think this is the first year back or something. Actually, I don't know if they did it last year, but I, probably not. I don't think they did it last thought. year, no. But I think they're doing it this year. Um, but that goes into what I want to ask you, because you mentioned um, IDEO and the words that I feel like we hear it and it's a trigger, but in a, in a good way. 
because we've had it drilled into our brains for this, you know, human-centered design and design research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like we have to ask you about your experience at IDEO because it, I think it's kind of wild for us to sit here and talk to you. I've had, you know, someone who's had the experience being there because we like, we, we spent so many hours in class learning about IDEO, you know, like I, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Dilma, I'm pretty sure our, our prof that I was just mentioning, uh, Odin, he, mm-hmm. I think mentioned that he tried to like, they've set up, or at least for our program that we're in the whole, like design method and the design research and the way we we conduct that um was based off of IDEO. You know, so we we <laughs> so it's a little it's it's cool. And I, I think we'd both love to hear, you know, what your experience was like there because we spent so much time learning about it, you know, and like yeah. it's a again, it's something that we take for granted second nature now thinking about, you know, design method and design research. Yeah. My God, I'm going to sound so old now. It's, uh, <laughs> so when I was going, when I was kind of in my early 20s and I was trying to figure out like what version of industrial design I want to do, that's around when IDEO and Prague were kind of, IDEO had just formed, I think they formed between a, a few different, there was David Kelly Design and, ID, and Matrix. And then I think it was Matrix. It was uh, Bill Mogridge's studio. And then mm-hmm. Mike Nuttall also, has, there's three, three design studios that came together. And then I joined well after that, so 2006 and seven. They went through their, um, uh, Jane Fulton Surrey was one of the kind of key team members there that really was able to bring anthropology, anthropological practices into design. Mm-hmm. And so she was well before my time in the, I think the late 90s, but I'm not sure about that exactly when she, when she was kind of crafting that whole process. And I think that's been the foundation. Uh, when I joined in 2007, I was there for three years and I was there as an, a kind of a hybrid interaction designer, industrial designer. And so the, in, in, in the, both practices, industrial design and interaction design, were, were using that, but it, it's just a more natural fit for uh, digital design mm-hmm. um, because the ability to iterate and kind of get feedback and prototypes is a, a, and, and prototypes are more interactive um, was where we did a lot of, uh, a lot of work. And uh, yeah, yeah the, 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 the time that I was there was fabulous in terms of really being able to I was at a design studio called Whipsaw before that, and uh, that was a nice, a really nice experience. Really talented industrial designers, and um, I guess I honed my craft there. Um, kind of learned the, the skills of industrial design, um, and um, but when I went to IDEO, it was just a complete reversal in priorities. And so we were basically parking our designs, our design doing skills, and turning our design thinking skills. So instead of necessarily like designing the thing, we spent a lot of time trying to understand what the new design opportunity would look like. So like uh, my first project there was for Western Digital, like designing like not hard drives, but like what would the future of hard drives look like when we are starting to back everything up to the cloud? And like, mm. what would a new service look like? And I was like, what, when, when do I design the thing? And <laughs> so we went through eight weeks of talking to users or, or not even users. Like, I think we talked to different persona types. So like there's someone who's a hoarder, someone who's like a digital archivist who likes to organize everything perfectly. Someone who's just like your average college student. And like, they didn't even have hard drives. Some of them, they just had like one, one, one person just had a bunch of like um, photo albums, but through the conversation around what photo albums meant to them and like how they stored them and how they organized them and, and um, the inherent value in them. Like we were taking away uh, what, what potential features or value we can introduce into a future product or our category of products for a company. Hmm. Super different than what I'd previously been doing. Um, but I think it, I, it was a good fit for me because I, that systemic side of my brain that like, I'd gotten through that engineering school, like being able to kind of burp, 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 all the parts of the puzzle fit together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a puzzle a little bit because hmm. as ideas too, right? Idea, a lot of that's it's puzzle, but it's a lot more tangible and form driven. This was like psychological and functional. And, and you, got, you always got that Venn diagram of like <laughs> desirability. <laughs> it's being drilled in your head, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no need to regurgitate that Venn diagram. <laughs> Pretty sure we've all seen it a million times. Um, anyways, hopefully that answers your question a little bit of like what the experience yeah. was like. I definitely, 
enjoyed my time there and, and, and work with some really amazing people. But I did, um, my next step was to get a little more tactical again. So when I, I left one of the set the design studio that was doing more uh, designing of things. Um, but since then, our studio has, as we've kind of evolved our practice, we're now doing work that's more strategy focused as well. So mm. not only are we designing the thing, but we're understanding like how that thing fits into a bigger company's picture. And, and um, so, yeah, our service is kind of moving into the world of, of both strategy and brand. So um, it always helps to be able to have those higher level conversations to inform why we're making the thing we're making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's really impactful, and I don't think you can get a more concise answer than that. That was that was fantastic. <laughs> that was just straight to the core of of everything. And a lot of the the curric, like Zach was saying, a lot of the curriculum is built around like the basics or the like the basic essentials that kind of I guess probably brought IDEO to the forefront of the design industry and made them what they are today. Um, but I think a, a challenge that the school or at least not the school itself, but the education system um, either is currently encountering or will encounter in the future is an evolution of that where mm-hmm. right now it's, it's been the same since I don't even know when, but, and I, it's, it's again, a large institution and they're very slow and or resistant to change. And eventually something will need to happen in terms of the evolution of the curriculum, um, or changing what or how things are taught. Um, I know Zach mm. and I, like we fantasize a lot about if we were to go back and be profs or even go back as students, we would approach everything totally differently mm-hmm. because we're six years removed from where we started at, which you can obviously say when your hindsight is 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get to TA two days a week at the place where I was taught, which is a lot of fun. And it's a, it's a great time. I love it to death. It's like one of the favorite parts of my week. And on Thursdays and Fridays, I'm confronted by these students who come up to me and ask me probably similar questions that I was asking, you know, six years ago. And I have to tell them that what you're worrying about, it seems like a big deal right now, but it's not like, get it out of your head. Don't worry about don't worry about the fact that your sketch in your sketchbook isn't perfect. It's not going to be, and it's not supposed to be. If you can get over that mindset, that's a good thing. And you can kind of build towards, it's not about creating something that looks pretty and fancy where no one's going to see it because it's in your sketchbook. It's about understanding what makes that thing desirable, what makes it an aesthetically pleasing product and what makes someone want to buy it. Um, But that's, probably a thing something that you can really only learn with time and practical experience in the industry um but so i appreciate your answer very much on that whole spiel that was fantastic and to go back to your previous question about design conferences and stuff no have not been um would have liked to but it is very it's opportune timing because um, I'm fortunate to go to Finland in March for Arctic Design Week. Um, nice. So I think that's the third week in March. Um, so I'll, I get to go there and then I'll be spending a week or so in Amsterdam after the fact because Earthscape, the company that I work for, we have a, a European office in Amsterdam. So I'll be able to spend a little bit of time there um, and work there for the rest of the week and then fly home. So currently I have not been to a a design conference, which I feel like I should at this point. I feel like it's one of those things that I just should have, but I just haven't. I think I was more resistant to, or I was was more content to just stay home when I was in school and do homework as opposed to go out and gain experience and, and meet people in the real world which is probably what I should have done instead of doing my homework at the end of the day. But you live, you live and you learn. 
Um, you, you have mentioned though, a few times the, the studio that you're running and that's card 79 previously woke in, 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 um, in past tense. So I'm, I'm curious, can you kind of give us like a snapshot of beyond what you've already said, but like what, what is card 79 and how does, how does that start? Cause Zach and I have this, I don't want to call it a dream cause it's a practical thing and we're working towards it, albeit very slowly, but of one day having our own design company or our own design studio with, with a group of friends and we can all collaborate together. Um, and you know, we're obviously in the primitive stages of it and still finding our feet with everything as everyone does building it from the ground up. But what was the experience of, of building and curating a design studio team like for you with, with card 79? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think the process of, first of all, it didn't necessarily like, it wasn't a beautiful curation process. It was a, um, uh, kind of, I guess, a, an, an interest in trying to, uh, just maybe stubbornness do design on, on kind of, kind of my own terms, even though it's always in service of a client and helping them, but just wanted to kind of have a little bit more of control over my kind of, I guess, design destiny. Um, and so what that meant is that we started, I started out doing a lot of freelance work and the freelance work slowly started to build out. And at that point I started to kind of, uh, not freak out, but like try and problem solve and find, uh, people and resources and just kind of make stuff happen. So the first time around, I think you're just kind of trying to get everything in place. If you can curate it and that word actually does stick even better, but it probably means that you have some level of control over your pipeline. You know, what works coming through and you can predict uh, in a very like probably, and maybe you've got a, a great network. Like I know that as you get further out from school, like your resources of other people who are actively available and interested in collaborating, it gets less and less because everyone gets set in their ways and they've got their own very well-defined jobs or directions they're heading in. Um, but like early on, I think it was, it was it's easier to pull from a lot of resources and be a, little, a lot more like agile. And then as we were going, I think there was a point in time where uh, Woke was set up in Vancouver back in 2014. And then I made the move back down to the Bay Area. Uh, and in between there, I was actually, I think I skipped a part. I, I moved back to London in 2010 after working at IDEO because I was, I really enjoyed my time uh, in London and really enjoyed the design culture there. So I went back for a year and a bit, worked for some studios over there. Um, and so made my way back to Vancouver, set up a studio, tried to kind of, I guess, I guess the connection there was I, I, I'd been around a lot of creative studios. Like I was working at Barbara Osgerby, which is a, their furniture designers in London. I worked for Terrence Conrad. He's, he was a, he was really um, quite, he was further along and he was older at that point in time. Um, so we didn't necessarily work closely with him. Um, but I guess the smaller design studios that were kind of, I think London has got tons of, and they're all really creative, doing really cool work, have really beautiful workspaces. You're like, that's it kind of plants a seed of like that's the kind of place I want to have for myself and for us to work in. So just even imagining the, the type of the type of environment you want to spend your your days in. Um, as I've kind of evolved the studio, I also realized that like there is this thing called a pipeline. It's and it's kind of the work that you've got coming through the door, and planning for that is is part of the way that you grow a studio. So being a little bit more intentional with um, managing, managing like a, a business is, is kind of, it's, it's become part of the conversation, uh, in a good way. And I think it helps enable us to have the right tools to imagine what it looks like to have more impact. So, mm -hmm. um, as we want to work with different uh, companies and they want to know they can work with a team that's got enough resources and enough, uh, capabilities, um, to, to be, build that out with internally and to, and to know, if you can't do it internally, like who's who's within your network that you can work with to achieve that that outcome that someone would might want from you. Um, mm -hmm. So, a lot of it's kind of scoping strategy work, like scoping 
strategically what the what type of work you can do, what you want to do. Um, a lot of for us has come out naturally, though. I, I feel like because of the fact that uh, we've done this work um, at this intersection of like technology and, and design, but it seems to have gone to the like the very out there technology side of things. Like we've done work on brain computer interfaces. I mentioned autonomous vehicles. Uh, we've done work with space robots. I can't mention that work, I, I, but, I, but we are doing things in that space right now. So um, it's, it's uh, it, I think it comes back to that background of like working between engineering and design. But the time I spent in London working for furniture designers, I remember, um, you guys know the Bourlec brothers, yeah? So um, I think so. They're the, I think so amazing furniture designers but i remember one of our one of my colleagues who i work with in london's work there and he described that these uh they would have have one of the team members photograph their furniture for a week before they brought in the actual photographer like perfecting composition perfecting light and shadow really understanding how to capture something in the best possible way and i was like oh that's amazing so like even though we're working on these really complicated technology projects, I still bring that to the table. Like I still want to get that beautiful image that, uh, and we did it like the, the photo that's on the cover of the New York times for Neuralink. Uh, when they first came out, we shot that in Vancouver, we organized, uh, the shoot, we brought in, all, we, we composed all those images beforehand, um, brought in all the models, designed the prototypes, figured out how we're going to shoot them, how we're going to light them. Um, and so stuff like that, it really starts to feel. Like we're able to bring these really complex and kind of overwhelmingly scary technologies into a place where we can uh, talk about them, appreciate them, and even make make them something potentially like um, palatable. Um, not to say that we want to sell something that's scary. We <laughs> I think we want to make sure that we're uh, we're enabling a conversation, making it feel a bit more human. And that I I can recall vividly when. I first heard people talking about Neuralink and the fact that, you know, Elon Musk wants to put a chip in people's brain and explore that whole realm of things. And most of it was, for me, was very surface level. I didn't really dive into it because it, at the time, it wasn't really what interested me. But and from from you and from your experience, this, I think it's it's a great example because you know, everyone knows if you didn't know who Elon Musk was before the start of this year, you do now. Um, Twitter aside, most people know Neuralink and they know that it has something to do with, you know, what the brain is going to be doing in however many years. But I I'm wondering if we can dive into it a little bit where Neuralink is a good example of something that doesn't quite yet exist. It's it's a product in air quotes that doesn't uh, traditionally exist. It doesn't have an existing archetype behind it other than it is. Some people know what a computer chip is and they know what your brain is and they have this vision of like a motherboard getting stuck to your brain and uh, an invasive surgery. And the whole thing seems, like you said, quite scary. But there is also the potential for a tremendous upside to it as well. So how do you approach tackling a giant beast like that? Or, or how did yourself in the studio approach something that call it monumental? Uh, I think there's probably a few lenses there. There's like two come to mind. One is enabling, and this might not be through a client request. It might be like, like we're, 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 we did it. We we did the work for Neuralink, and then completely on our own accord, we did a side project trying to picture what the future of brain computer interfaces could be for society or individuals, like everyday lives, in terms of how it can impact their privacy or their sense of control. And we did them as a series of videos, and we did a. We I actually presented it at uh, the Interior Design Show in Toronto. We did it at South by Southwest in Austin. And uh, it was enabling a conversation. And mm -hmm. so I think that some of the uh, work that we would do in these spaces where there are no archetypes is to enable us to unpack what it means uh, if these archetypes were to turn into 
technologies that were feasible that were then determined into products that could be shipped, uh, and then products that were shipped and popular and were impacting society at scale. There's a lot of barriers that potentially we'll never get through, but if we were to get through them, it feels like this is a, a, a category of product that can have a huge impact. So it's important to talk about it sooner than later. Very well might be a waste of time, but I think that's the risk we're happy to take on. Um, a, because it's important, B, because it's just interesting. Like, wow, like the idea is interaction designers imagining like how we can use our thoughts to control something. Uh, we were like perplexed by like, I have so many types of thoughts. Like, am I picturing something? Am I controlling it by imagining moving something? Am I like, so there's just philosophically super interesting. And that took us, that can take you down one path. And then zooming back up to the, the other thing, the other side of tackling a product sorry, not a product, a potential new technology that doesn't have any product archetype to it is that you are work, working very closely with very smart engineers and the priority is the technology for them. Uh, this is not yet close to productization. So there's a lot, the shift, the priority has shifted. So as much as um, we, we've made these beautiful photo shoots happen and done the storytelling, at the same time, we're sitting next to very smart people who have very little time for us, who are like, we have to solve a very difficult problem right now. And, and the way that you kind of describe how this could be productized in the future um, is great, but um, we're, we're, we have more pressing issues. And so I think it's being able to work within their technical constraints, step back and really understand what, what the problems are. And usually when it's like, uh, in, in, with, I, I'm not a great coder. I've tried and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I wish I was. But anyways, there's libraries and you use libraries and you, you build on the shoulder of giants, right? Uh, but when you're at the base level, like what was computing like back in the 50s when you're dealing with mainframes? And like this is with a lot of these technologies, we're dealing at the base level. So we have to kind of listen very closely to what's where the technology is at and then build with it. So, and then hopefully from there, start to visualize where this fits into people's lives. So again, we've gone through the digital revolution. We've seen how like the, the personal computer added value by listening to what people were doing in their homes, in their everyday, not just assuming it would be like this thing you went and sat in front of to be super productive and you were, you became the machine. No, the machine became you like, you start like understanding that technology has to work for some human need, especially if it's got a consumer face to it. It's not always the case. We work for a lot of time, a lot of project where it's B2B, but there's still a, a person in that business who has to somehow benefit from the work that we're doing. So always having an understanding of human need um, mixed with that ability to craft that new archetype um, and understand those crazy technical requirements that are coming from these people who are so deep in their kind of technical challenges. Um, There's probably a couple of things that um, have made designing for archetypes that don't exist yet uh, tricky, but fun. Mm -hmm. And I, I can imagine, thank you for that explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was a bit verbose, sorry. That's okay, don't apologize. But in that line of work, you know, what we're talking about where you're, you're, trying to create a category that does not yet exist. Um, and, you know, this is something I've experienced. This is something Zach has experienced. We've talked about it. Maybe probably 25% of the content of the podcast pertains to this idea, but it's overcoming this idea of, of imposter syndrome. Like why me, why am I qualified to do this or who, why does someone think I'm qualified to do this? You get in your own head at that and say, I just, you know, say it all the time. I graduated two like two years ago. What business do I have talking to so and so from this company for work? Or even the fact that we're here, there's a huge sense of imposter syndrome <laughs> in in myself right now, sitting here being able to talk to you, um, you know, all the way down in in San Francisco. And I'm curious how you. Or even if you experience that, maybe you don't, maybe you're just super confident all the time and it doesn't exist in your head. But if it does, how do you kind of tackle that beast? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I tackle it in the most effective way. I, I, I guess, I don't know if it's, um, yeah, a few different factors might impact it, but the answer, short answer is I assume that um, as a creative who's practicing a craft and improving at a craft, that's all I can do. So I might not win today, I might not win tomorrow, but the overall arc is to continue to improve and to continue to try to just get better. And I think through that process, you're going to see who's really good. And if they're really good, then there you go. That's, that's what good looks like. Uh, it's better yeah. to see that than to not see it and, and kind of hide and just try and surround yourself with people who are not that good. And if I, I guess I've, I've, yeah, I think it also there's just a, I've probably gotten, there's probably a lot more clarity that comes when you start to um, listen to, hmm, it's a tough one. You want to expand your horizon and constantly get better at areas you're not strong at. On the flip side, there's a time where you can come and say like, these are three things I know I'm good at. And there's like, mm -hmm. you can do personality tests. I, there's tons of them out there. You can just intuitively understand yourself. Sometimes being able to find that balance of pushing yourself, but then also embracing your strengths and saying, okay, well, in these areas, I know I can, I can really excel at. And if I pursue those, I'm probably going to feel a little bit more confident and a little more comfortable because I just know I'm good at it. And I've always been good at it. There's a little, I think there's always these, I don't know if they're called origin stories or like creator, I forget what the term is, when, when you believe you were meant to be that thing. Um, oh, and the more you have that, I think it just pushes you through stuff. Like, I think for me, maybe it's like, I was like, oh, like when I was a kid, I was going to be a car designer. So like, I was meant to make things that didn't exist before. And I think mm -hmm. for me, it, like, it might be that I'm not great at coding or like, I, I don't know, like designing like beautiful surfaces and cars is not my thing, but I, I'm going to make something new to the world. Like, I think that's, mm. I, I have that like core belief that I think, uh, and yeah, I think maybe that's another tool I go to. Um, so there's a few ideas. That was what something that you just said really struck out to me. And I think it's almost the episode title, but it's, you need to be able to push yourself and at the same time, embrace your strengths. And I think maybe too often there's too much of a focus on one or the other. You're, you're pushing yourself really hard to get better at something you're not. And maybe you're ignoring what you're good at because you're trying to get better at something else or the complete opposite. And you're, 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 you've got the blinders on and you're just focusing on what you know you're good at. Cause that makes you feel good, but you're not progressing. You've kind of reached a, a career or creative plateau maybe. Yeah. And it, it, yeah. it, it really, it strongly resonated, um, with me very much what you, what you had said there. Cool. And as we, as, as we wrap it up, because we want to be respectful of your time, we don't want to keep you too late. I've heard that San Francisco um, commuting isn't exactly the, the quickest thing in the world. Correct me if I'm wrong, but can it be slow uh, at times? If you're on a bike, it's fine. <laughs> you just <laughs> weave through traffic and you're good to go as long as you, you don't get hit by a car, which knock on wood so far, I've been, I've been lucky. Good. Touch wood, everybody collectively touch wood on the desk. <laughs> um, looking like forecasting into the future, like industry and the world itself changes like a mile a minute. We saw that with COVID stuff was changing by the minute. Um, but with technology and, and AI today on Jan 24th, 2023, where do you see the work that you're doing down the line it could be two years it could be five years it could be 10 years where do you where do you see yourself in card 79 going or yeah, is there a trajectory maybe there's not it's it's probably just comes back to personal like my who i am but i that side of me that likes that that complexity that tech, technical challenge um I think we're interested in like where is industrial design going to go as the technology around our consumer lives becomes more complex. Like 
I don't know if it's around immaterialization with like all the AI work or whether it's going to be this bridge between the physical and digital with the metaverse and finding ways to apply, like apply industrial design skills to um, non, non-material experiences, um, brain-computer interfaces. I feel like that's further out um, from everything we're seeing. That's, that's, that's more than five, five years out, 10 years out. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I'm cautious. There's a lot of hype cycles going on right now. The experience we've all had with the, like chat GPT and GPT-4 mm-hmm. that's coming out, I think we're all kind of, it's, it's kind of real. We're all seeing that it's, it's actually impacting our lives pretty positively. Um, I just used it this morning to try and find a better font, and it was pretty useful. Hmm. So <laughs> I, I even planned my kid's fourth birthday with it. I said, plan oh, out a monster, monster, yeah, monster car birthday for a four-year-old boy, and it gave me like a bunch of different activities, and it was a really good birthday. I, I tweaked it a bit, obviously, um, but anyways, I, I guess uh, yeah, the that we're we're kind of setting ourselves up to deal with the challenges that are going to be maybe outside of the, like an evolution of the industrial design practice that's set up to tackle challenges, technical challenges that might feel like they're um, requiring a more broad and diverse uh, team of of technical brains while still making beautiful, amazing, emotionally engaging um, digital and physical products. Uh, I think we're, we're kind of blurring the boundaries between our UX UI practice and our ID practice there too, which I think has become part for the course too. There's no differentiation. There's so many studios now offer um, all those services. Super. I can't think of a better way to end it other than um, other than where um, where can people connect with you, see more of your work, um, and maybe other than listening to this podcast, get to know a little bit more. Um, about who you are well i guess we've got to work a little bit harder because you hadn't heard anything about us until this call so <laughs> i'm an introvert I, I live in a silo it's okay it's, no it's no no I, I, it's, me. it's no 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 it's um uh we've got card79.com we've got our instagram which is a uh, little we've kind of fallen off uh it's 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 still active but um i think everyone's a little bit um kind of burnt out on instagram but Card.79 LinkedIn, we're on quite regularly. Um, and um, those are our socials that we kind of lean into mostly. And then I'll be, we'll be at South by Southwest in Austin in March talking about BCIs. We've got uh, some talented um, professors and, uh, and professors of ethics talking about the, what impact brain-computer interfaces could have on society. Um, and yeah, uh, reach out Afshin at cart79.com. I've got a, a Twitter handle. I think it's Afmehin, A-F-M-E-H-I-N. I think I've got like 15 followers, so nice. it's not that <laughs> but, uh, are, you, are you verified on Twitter? Did you pay for one of the, the verification things? I don't even know if that's still a thing. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't. I, that's I, okay. Uh, yeah, but the we, we're doing some... Yeah, we were on Twitter for a little while because we were interested in what NFTs were going to be doing for for design, industrial design. Um, and so we were active on Twitter for a little while, which is interesting. Don't know if a lot of the follows we had are real or, or bots, but there you go. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell, especially, especially now. Yeah, um, totally. Thank you so much, Option, for, for your time and for sharing you know, what is hopefully just the tip of the iceberg in terms of stuff that we can talk about. Um, if you'd like to come back, we'll have you back in a heartbeat. Uh, we'd be more than more than happy to make that happen. This has been an absolute blast and highlight of my week um, cool. for sure. So you stay where you are. We'll say goodbye, um, you know, when, once we stop the recording here. Um, Zach and I will, will do our little ending spiel, which I'm sure you're familiar with from listening to the episode now. Um, yes. but I wanted to say thank you. Thank you very yes. much for, thank for you, what thank you've you. done is huge. Yeah, no, 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 no. This has been a pleasure and I uh, really appreciate the offer and I uh, might take you up on it. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, Zach, um, did you know that we have a website and it's called www.bigdesigncompany.com and you can go there. 
you can also send us an email to hi.theprocesspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also email hi at bigdesigncompany.com. Zach Watson, what is our Instagram that we don't really use? Yeah, we, yeah, we also are a little burnt out on the Instagram, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that resonates. That that, that resonates. Uh, it's the process underscore underscore podcast. Fantastic, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been Afshin Mahin, and he'll be coming back for sure. We hope, um, we hope. at some point in the not too distant future. And hope you enjoy. Have a good rest of your week, and we will see you on Monday. Peace. The process. assembly required.